0: Hello everybody and welcome to the Flip the Script podcast with me, with Conor O'Keefe. Um, thank you all for listening. Uh, wherever you are and whatever time of day it is, whatever you're doing right now, thank you um, for listening to what I have to say. Um, firstly, the name of the podcast is called Flip the Script. Um, I'm going to explain at the end of this podcast why I called it Flip the Script but first of all, my first episode is going to be a background on, on who I am on who Conor O'Keefe is, to give you guys an idea Um, a lot of you guys might follow my Instagram page, a lot of you might not um, a lot of you your, your friends might say, here, check out this lanky dope here he's after making an old podcast there and um, he talks some good stuff, hopefully anyway um, but I'm going to give you a background to who I am um, I'm going to lay it all bare from what I was like as a child um, The dreams I had of, be- of of what I wanted to become as an adult and, and kind of basically everything that brought me until the moment in time When I kind of found Ultramarathon Found who I was Found the adventurer in me again And, and how I moved forward from that um, So yeah Connor O'Keefe um i was born on the 10th of september 1991 it was a great year great year for lanky cork men great year for hip hop music as well and uh, for all of my hip hop aficionados there twas a great year anybody who was born in 1991 peace and love anyone who wasn't peace and love um but yeah as you probably would expect from listening to my Instagram posts of me just fucking going off on whatever I kind of feel like talking about, I was a super high energy kid. I was a high energy kid, and I didn't really like doing what I was told, as a lot of kids don't. Um, I remember I was I was um, we were living in Mayfield in Cork um, for when I was when I was very very small for the first like four years of my life. And down at the end of my road, I was lived in a place called Borreby Close, and there was a cul de sac. At the end of this cul-de-sac, there was a large puddle of water, right? This puddle of water would be there, like, all year round. During the summertime, it, could, it might not have rained for ten days, and there would be a big puddle at the end of this road. I don't know what it was. It was a natural phenomenon. But it was very, very mucky in this puddle, and I loved muck. Loved muck, loved filth and dirt. And I remember every single day, I would trot my ass down to the end of this road and jump in this puddle and squeeze the muck with my fingers and watch the muck going between my fingers as I squeezed it and just loved it. Loved getting filthy dirty. And every single time that I would do this, every time, I would go back up to my parents, filthy dirty, just after being changed, and be be half killed by by one of them by my mother or my father my father was a soldier he was working during the day so it was usually my mam and my mother tells this story of me um, one day, I'm about three years old three and a half years old this was when you could roam around the gaff at three years old and uh, people kind of people looked out for each other's kids and stuff I came back up from the puddle at the end of the road and walked through the door hands hanging and my mam met me in the hallway and I looked up at her and I goes, "Go on, slap me, ma'am." <laughs> that was the last time I ever got a slap on the bum, because she was like, "It's there's no point in slapping this boy. Like there's no point in slapping this child, because he doesn't give a fuck. He's just gonna go down and do it anyway, you know." And was that I had this kind of rebellious nature in me, but I also kind of knew how adults thought at the time, um, which kind of followed me into secondary school, really. Like th- that was a precursor basically to how I was gonna be in primary school. I got trouble in the first day of school. I remember telling my mother in the first day of school, no nah, ma'am, it's not for me, boy. <laughs> it's not for me. Like school just isn't for me. This is the first day I'm five years old. I said I and, and my mother always tells me the first day you came out she were like, No, nah, I don't think school is for me <laughs> I could know straight away that school wasn't for me. I would always get in trouble in school. Um I suppose there was a mix of things of the reasons why I, I, I was in trouble in school but um, my mother always says because I was hyper intelligent and I don't know I, I don't know if that's actually the case whatsoever I think it's just I did not like sitting still I did not like sitting still I preferred moving and I preferred like having my mind active in that kind of way than sitting down and, and learning ABCs and that kind of stuff you know what I mean. And a lot of kids find themselves in that bracket, like, you know what I mean? And it follows them into adulthood, whether they like it or not, it follows them into adulthood, because it followed me into adulthood, for sure. But I remember always being in trouble in school, and just, like, no matter how hard I tried to be good, I couldn't be good. And this this was the script that I would feed myself, like, the script that I would feed myself is, oh, Connor, you're just bold, like, you're just a bold kid, you're not, you know what I mean? You're never going to be a good kid, like, you know? And that's that's actually what I was feeding myself from, like, the get-go, you know. Um, But I I, I remember just being on a higher plane of thinking. I just, I I did not like, I did not like kind of doing what I was told, but doing what I was told for no real reason, you know. In school, like, they fucking, like, teachers taught that that kids were just the most stupid things in the world. They could tell them whatever the fucking the fuck they wanted them to to, to tell them, and they would go along with it. And I was just like, nah, uh, that ain't me. And I I'm not going to do that, like, you know. So like I remember in first class, two two things happened in first class. I mean, it was a big year, big year in my life. and um, two things happened in first class, right? Well well, you know, two things that I remember. Um, I went to a Gaeil school, an Irish school, like so it was, it was taught fully through Gaelic or Irish, or whatever way you want to call it. Irish I call it. at uh, Gaelga. And you would be told to be quiet by saying "Maire er de Val," Maire de veil. Finger on your mouth, Maire de veil. So you'd cross your hands, and you put one of your fingers over your lips, right? So the teacher would go Maire de veil. and everybody would—I f- mean, like it would—it would be as quick as motherfucking lightning. Everybody would have their fingers up to their mouth, and there's me just sitting there normally, and and the teacher kind of, come that's that's Irish for "Connor." "Cruaigh" for anybody who doesn't know the old "Coupla Fuckle." Co mayor veil you' know, finger on your mouth bye no, I was just like, well, I can just be quiet like I don't have to put my finger over my fucking mouth um and that used to get me in an awful lot of trouble. It was like, why are you why are you bucking the trend? why are you why are you standing for for this 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 perceived injustice? but uh yeah, it got me it got me stood at the back of the class quite a lot because this this particular teacher, I think she stood me at the class every single day at least that's what I remember as, as a 7 or 8 year old boy I remember being stood at the end of the class every single day and my face facing the wall so obviously she to put me up against the wall and I could see out the rest of the class and I was there waving and laughing and joking and acting the maggot so she was like turn around like you know what I mean You're, you you face the wall like you know I ain't putting up with this no more crueur. Um, but yeah she used to put me up against the wall every single day and I remember her coming over one time and saying, are you ready to sit down now? Are you ready to sit down and join enjoy, enjoy the class? And I said, no. Nah, I'll, I'll, I'll stand here all day, baby. You know, I was just like, and I didn't even look at her. I was looking at the wall. I could see her. She was flabbergasted. And I was like, I'm not, I'm not gonna, you know, I know what you're doing is wrong. I knew at seven, eight years old, like this shouldn't be happening. Like, You know what I mean? So I was like, no, if you're gonna make that bad choice about that bad decision, I'm gonna let you, I'm gonna make you, Look at me for the rest of the day, like. And that got me in trouble. <laughs> I got sent out to the principal's office then. And uh that that, that was a, a recurring theme. And I remember in fourth class, as well as the teacher in fourth class, and uh, we, we 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 butted heads to say the very least. And we did not have a good time with each other. And I remember I was after doing some sort of bullshit. I was after doing something I was look, I was an no angel, like I was probably after doing something wrong, like you know what I mean, probably doing something real wrong. And he said Nobody put up their 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 um chair on the table now at the end of the day as you you would put your your chairs on the table at the end of the day I suppose the cleaners would find it easier to clean the, the school obviously you know if if you're if you're, um ta- your chair was on the table no one put up their chairs now on the table because Krohur is going to pick up every single one of them I was like you better believe I ain't doing that I literally zoomed up out the door I was skip a dip a dipping down the hallway by and I went straight onto the bus I was like you can drag me off this bus but I'm not going to be in late for nobody. You know, and I'm not picking up everybody's chair because I know that you're not doing this for any other reason, other to embarrass me in front of my class, like you know. So yeah, I, I was calling, I was calling people out in their bullshit, but I was also, I like, I I, I was I was a probably a difficult child to deal with because I I expected more from the adults as well, and I was just pretty much a bit of a bollocks at at certain times too, you know. Um, but uh, yeah. The day I left primary school, I was like I, I remember after this kind of like um graduation thing or whatever the case may be, it was kind of all finished up, done dusted, and I said, Come on to my mother, I was like, Let's go. It's like it was it was right in the middle of it and I was like, Come on, we're finished here, like it's done. And I was expecting great things from secondary school and uh Jesus was I was I terribly wrong. <laughs> terribly wrong to be thinking that secondary school is gonna be any different. Um like, I had found a bit of solace in sport. I, I was playing rugby at the time because I was quite an overweight child, you know. I, I ate quite a lot. I comfort ate a lot because we moved to Glenmire from Mayfield when I was young. And um, in the intermittent time, we actually lived in the Glen for a small while as well. And when I lived in the Glen, I really had to fucking grow the grow the fuck up quick. Um, that was an area where, like, kids just grew up quickly and that was it, like, you know. And you would get your you'd get your Premier League stickers taken off you in a heartbeat if you um if you if you didn't know how to basically hold on to them. And um, look, I remember a certain chap. I'm, I'm not going to mention any names, but I remember a certain chap that lived there, and he would he would he enjoyed very much um kicking the fucking shit out of me. And uh, <laughs> I remember um it had gotten to a point where. I, um, I had um, I had to be walked. I had to be walked to the shop by my nan or by my mam. Um, I was living with my nan at the time, and because this guy just was 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 like kicking the shit out of me all the time, stealing my Premier League stickers and stuff, being a bit of a ball boy, you know. And um, I said one day to my nan, I goes, Nan, you don't have to walk me down here at all. I I'm, I'm going to walk down here on my own and um you don't have to worry about that i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna walk down so i remember thinking i'm gonna i'm gonna take something to protect myself so i couldn't exactly you know i went out to the shed and i couldn't exactly like take a fucking shovel with me like you know what i mean my nan would see me leaving with this fucking shovel in my hand so i was like there's a little bit of wood over there and it was shaped like a it was shaped like a doorstop and it just about fit into my 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 six-year-old pocket (laughs) And I walked off to the the shop and lo and behold, this boy was there and walking over towards me and going, "Connor, what's the story? Are you going to the shop? And before he could get a chance to lay some hands on me, I cleaved him into the side of the head with this bit of wood, panned him out on the floor and I booked it down to my nan's house. And kind of from there, I didn't get my Premier League stickers taken from from then on, really, like, you know. And that kind of followed me on through life. And as I said, I found found sport, solace and kind of sport in rugby. Because I was quite a quite a big kid I found sp- I found solace in sport and playing rugby I brought that aggression I was like hmm, maybe I could just be super aggressive and no one would fuck with me again on that level and I f- and I brought that into into rugby and I used to get an awful lot of trouble sent off in games punching fellas and all this kind of stuff as well when I was in in, in rugby but I was generally a pretty okay player. I thought I was really good, but I was only okay, to be honest. Because when I got into secondary school, I went to a rugby-playing secondary school, and I realised, yeah, no, you're not actually that great. You were a big fish in a small pond, and these boys know how to play. So I went into school. I was in trouble the same amount that as I was when I was in primary school. I was drowning in sport, like because I couldn't, I couldn't find a, a place to start on the on the on the team. And I was just like chubby, kind of awkward kid, so I wasn't good with girls. So the three things that you want to be good at when you're a young fella, and you're 13, 14, 15 years old, all you kind of want to be good at is school, sports, and girls. And I was strictly average at all three. Um, And I was just this, and I thought, I think that my weight was a big thing for me. I used to get bullied for my weight, but I gave just as good as I got, like, you know what I mean? I gave just as good as I got, and I, and gotten my fair share of fights in school. Got my fair share of verbal arguments in school. I gave as good as I got. I can't say that I was this poor guy getting picked on because I wasn't. I was just told I was fat daily, you know what I mean? But that was just like, ah, look, I'm fat. Like, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm going to be called fat if I'm fat in this school. And that's just the way it was. But I don't actually know what happened. But I just decided one day, I was like, I'm not going to be fat anymore. I'm not going to be fat anymore and i just started dieting and i i joined the gym the gym in mayfield that was up the road from school i remember getting the bus every single day with my gear bag up to this gym 16 years old lifting weights trying to trying to lose weight and and, and get fitter you know and uh, i did I, I, I actually did i and I, I got quite fit um i lost all this weight and i thought oh yeah i'm going to lose all this weight now and i'm going to lose the fat kid I'm gonna lose the fat kid. But what actually happened? I, I actually kept that fat kid for years. For years. I needed I needed a validation outside of of, of uh, just losing the weight. I kept that for years. And I'll explain how I kept that that fat guy, that fat fat kid in me for years. But I lost all of this weight and then I was like fucking hell, I'm actually fit. For the first time in my life, I'm actually fit and i was i i was fit and i i never had been fit before so i was like what what are we going to do so my father um served in the army for almost 40 years and i like looked up to him from the day i could actually realize that he was a soldier like you know i used to i used to he used to be coming the door and i was 3 years old and i'd be like how many did you kill today dad how many did you kill today i just all i thought was he's a soldier he goes out killing people that's it like you know what i mean <laughs> at 3 years old but I, I always wanted to follow his footsteps um, into the army, um, become an army officer and become become a, a ranger, an army ranger, special forces operative. And I'll also explain why that never happened as well. But um, I really much looked up to him and I wanted to go for a cadetship after, after I finished school. So I was like, do you know what, I'm going to do things that look good on my CV, going to going towards this cadetship, so I decided that I would go off and climb Mount Kilimanjaro for charity. Mount Kilimanjaro—it's the—it's the tallest mountain in Africa, and it's the tallest freestanding mountain in the world. It's the tallest mountain in the world that is not part of a mountain range. It's just a big dome volcano. It's just a big cone shape, basically, um, on the on the east coast of Africa, and my lord what an adventure right I was a 17 year old kid right who didn't really know his place in the world I didn't know my place in the sports um, arena I didn't know my place in school I wasn't the best student I was smart but I never let myself kind of you know study and, and apply myself to school and I wasn't a hit with the ladies whatsoever like at all so I didn't really have that area to, to you know find my own and I had lost all this weight, and I had just started going out with this girl, the very, very beginnings of going out with this girl, and, I, I, I but I, le- I leave anyway, and I leave Christian Brothers College, right, just this, this, um, this rugby playing school, and this, this leaving cert preparations, to go over to the east coast of Africa, to, to land in Kenya, and drive through Kenya into Nairobi, near Serengeti, and, climb Mount Kilimanjaro and what an amazing adventure that was for me like that was the first time I really actually think I tapped into who I was who I was meant to be at 17 at 17 years old it's very rare that any of us get a glimpse into who we are especially that early but I remember climbing the mountain right and I was I was, 300 metres from the top and um, our our guide was actually an ex-Royal Marines commando, and he had a glass eye, and very intimidating looking guy, but very, very nice guy, very warm-hearted guy, and I kind of wanted the best for everybody that was on the trek, but I remember stopping and leaning on a rock, I was very, very, I had very bad altitude sickness, and if you don't know what altitude sickness is, uh, well, like I don't know the scientific nature of altitude sickness, I just know how it feels, and how it feels is, the most hungover you've ever been and the drunkest you've ever been. Put the two of those together and you've got altitude sickness. You've got really bad altitude sickness. I was getting sick blood. I was nauseous. My legs were stiff and cramping. My hands had frozen around my walking poles. Couldn't move my fingers. And I was sitting down on this rock and he came down face to face at me. And he said, "Connor, if you don't start putting one foot in front of the other, I'm taking you off this mountain and you're done. Your claim is finished. And and right there and then I just dug my walking poles into the ground, got up off that rock, and walked up to the top of Africa at seventeen years old. And a wave of emotion washed over me. Washed over me, and I like and it was very rare for me to cry. And um, I had been told so many times as a kid to not cry by my teachers by my parents by friends by everybody because i was such a frustrated confused kid that i i did tend to cry quite a bit as a young fella as i got older i was like no that's not our life anymore we don't cry we don't cry i remember my first dog jake um we had to euthanize him because he couldn't walk anymore he was incontinent he was he was having a bad way and we had to euthanize him and um, we brought him into the vets. He euthanized Jake. And I remember I, I started to have tears in my eyes. I looked over at my brother and he hadn't started crying. And I said, okay, yeah, that's it. We we don't cry anymore. We're men. We're men. We don't cry. And Jesus, how, how tough that is to reverse. Um, When you get that into your head at 16, 17 years old that you shouldn't cry. It's tough as an adult to let those emotions go. And And, and they do... They do go when physical barriers are dropped for me, they do go. But I, I, I still struggle with that kind of aspect today. But I do remember crying at the top of Mount Kilimanjaro thinking, I cannot wait to get off this fucking mountain so that I can tell my mom and dad, especially my dad, because I wanted to make him proud, you know. He's this big, strong soldier. I've seen him come home from overseas and drop his big, huge bag full of gear down in the house and just be like in awe of this of this soldier, you know and i wanted to tell him how how uh, how amazing it was and and that that his son had gotten to the top of africa but i remember getting back from kilimanjaro very vividly because it was probably the first time in my life where i fe- really felt not so much like sad but like depressed like properly depressed like i i got home and just the normality of teenage life, of prepping for a Leaving Cert, being a Leaving Cert student and all this kind of stuff just hit me like a ton of bricks. I really didn't have a good time when I got back because I was just like, oh my God, I'm after seeing the world here. I'm after seeing this side of the world. Like it was even more untouched. It was 2008. So it was even less westernized than than it it, it would be today. And it was just beautiful, you know. Rarely saw any white people out there. It was very much, um, it was very much an an untouched part of Africa. But not so much Nairobi. Nairobi was a big bustling kind of metropolis, <laughs> I suppose, in terms of of African terms. But Tanzania was was incredibly incredibly beautiful. Um, but I just remember this kind of hollowness. I'm like Jesus, you know. I'm after doing this great achievement, and now I'm back to this shit. But, um, yeah, I remember getting back and, and thinking, Jesus, there's got to be more to this. I had this new girlfriend as well. This new girlfriend to me, boy, was such a weird thing. Not not so much weird. It was that I was this fat, awkward kid, never good with the ladies, never chatted to women, really, like, you know, texting girls and, and, and all this kind of stuff. Just not really me, not really my thing at all. And then this girl got interested in me Um. And Jesus Christ, I thought she was the most drop-dead gorgeous thing I'd ever seen in my life. And and a lot of lads back then would have, would have agreed with me. You know, she was stunning, beautiful. And she completely and utterly put a spell on me, basically. um, And I was searching for that thing, that thing that made me, 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 made Connor, Connor. And I still hadn't found it. Was like I had went over to Kilimanjaro, mountaineering, doing all of these things and I I, was back to this humdrum life and what that led me to then was Thai boxing, Muay Thai, Muay Thai kickboxing club I found myself walking in the doors of Siam Warriors Thai boxing club now I had done Taekwondo as a, as a kid um, and as a teenager and I had done a bit of British boxing as well. Up in up in Sunnyside Boxing Gym in the north side of Cork, I'd done a bit of boxing. But when I went into the to Siam Warriors and I started hitting pads, I was like, Oh my god. I remember just walking in there and just the the smell of like hard work, determination, just the clatter of leather from the pads. I just loved it immediately. I fell in love. I was infatuated. And I was good at it, which was just amazing to me because I hadn't really been naturally good at a sport before, ever. And once I was good, and I saw that people were like, "Jesus, you know, you can really put some, you know, you can really put some stuff together here." Like, you know, you're 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 good. I remember my coach Martin Horgan asking me what gym I had come from, and I was like, "This is my second session ever." And he was like, "Oh yeah, well, where'd you get the shorts?" I went off and bought shorts in a shop called Ludgate O'Keefe's because. I was like, I was just so in love with it after my first session, I was like, Yeah, I'm buying a pair of shorts. So I bought a pair of tie boxing shorts. If you ever if you haven't seen tie boxing shorts before, look them up on Google. They're like sparkly things with stars and stripes and things like that all over them. They're like boxing shorts really, like you know what I mean? They're they're um they're good fun. But um I remember just in that moment just thinking, This is yeah, this is it, this is me, this is Connor, this is who I am. I am Connor the Thai boxer, this is my identity. And I am going to become Irish champion. That's all I had in my head. I was going to be Irish champion. And I remember fighting. I remember at the start of my career getting stopped. My first C-class fight. I got stopped. I got stopped in the second round. Um, the, ref, the ref called the fight. Jesus Christ, I was devastated. I was 18 years old. You know, I was 18 years old. Thought I was a man. But I was like, I was really a boy. And I was a boy for many, many years after that. But... I remember getting stopped in my first fight and being like, "Jesus, maybe, maybe Thai boxing isn't for me. Maybe I'm not as good as I thought I was." But I remember coming back, and I remember I was like dragging myself out of the ashes. I was the phoenix rising from the ashes, and I remember that actually being in my mind. I thought about getting a phoenix rising from the ashes tattooed on me for years afterwards. Thank God I didn't. I just, I don't know. I think it's a bit, a bit too cliche. Um but here says the guy who has Simpsons tattooed t- tattooed up and down his arms. Um, but anyway, I do remember getting back in there, and I fought again, and I remember fighting and, and winning like seven or eight fights on the trot, maybe nine fights on the trot, and then having a mixed few bags of fights or whatever, and then winning a fight that kind of basically was kind of putting me in line to do something you know, fight for an Irish title or something like that. And I remember one day walking into the gym and be and being told that I had, that I was gonna fight for an Irish title. Now to give you some background into how I was during that time. I was in college, I'd finished up school, I had repeated my leaving cert, right? I'd repeated my leaving cert because I wanted to be oh, this is another side story, right? But I repeated my leaving cert because I wanted to do occupational therapy. I didn't want to be an occupational therapist. I really didn't. I wanted to be a doctor, but I didn't back myself to do medicine because I just felt, geez, you're not smart enough to do that. And I didn't back myself to do medicine, so I was like, oh, look, I'll just be—I'll be an occupational therapist. No, no offense to any occupational therapists um, listening here. It just wasn't my career path. It, it just should never have been. And I repeated to get that right. But the funny thing about this is, was. I actually ended up doing a law degree, right? Out of fucking nowhere, like, you know, really, like, didn't have a fucking clue that I was going to be doing a law degree. But I ended up doing a law degree. And I tell you a funny story of how I actually ended up doing law was about two or three weeks before the CAO had to be finalized. I was sitting down in in my living room with my mother and we were watching Law and Order. (laughs) You can see where this is going now. I was watching Law and Order and I was like, ma'am, I could do this shit. I could do this. I could do that better than they could. And right then and there, I went into the computer and I changed around my CAO. So occupational therapy was my first choice. My second choice was sports science and PE, physical education. And I changed it to law. And lo and behold, when I got my points, I got 505 points. I don't know what the point system is like these days, but I got 505 points back in the Dizay when I did it back in 2010. And I what I did in my first one in 2009, my second one in 2010, and I remember, um, getting 5.05 and going, oh, I got exactly what OT is, and then it went up to 5.15, and I ended up doing law, I ended up getting offered law, and I was like, fuck it, you know what, it's not the worst thing ever, but I knew straight away, I wasn't going to do anything with law, I, I started studying it, and I was like, oh yeah, Jesus, I'm going to be a barrister, and all this kind of stuff, nah, I knew, I knew after the first year, I was like, let's just get this degree done, I really enjoyed doing the degree, you know, um, from, from school into college, I had actually turned into a bit of a nerd. I absolutely loved studying. I loved studying, loved doing assignments, loved doing that. I think it probably gave me some sort of validation. It gave me some sort of validation that school didn't, that I was looking for. But I was studying law and doing my law degree while fighting and doing Thai boxing. That left very little room for partying and normal social life of a 19, 20, 21, 22-year-old. So, I didn't. I didn't socialize. I lived like a monk. I didn't go on a leaving sort holiday. I didn't go out in Freshers Week or Rag Week or college balls or anything like that. I didn't. I didn't do those normal things that 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 young fellas do at that moment in in time in in their lives. And I I, I kept that regimented attitude, and it really put a lot of stre- stress on my on my relationship with my girlfriend because that relationship was. I suppose it wasn't really a good one. We, we both kind of depended on each other for kind of happiness, let's say. And I, I really stunted who I was to to be with this girl. I, I basically packed up the ideas of me becoming a soldier, of me doing a, a cadetship um, and becoming an army ranger because she saw how, how much uh, my father was away and um, she didn't really want that for her. And I was only glad to 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 go along with that um and the only thing that she couldn't beat the only thing that she couldn't basically make me put her in front of was Thai boxing so it was a it was a big bone of contention within our relationship was like I was just always boxing I never fucking you know chilled out ate bad food had a couple of drinks never did any of that shit so like the normal stuff that people like to do in relationships I didn't do that shit Cause I lived this monk lifestyle. I read a book called Four Kings* by George Kimball, and uh, one of the one of the boxers that that was about was Marvin Hagler, and how he used to put himself into jail. And I used to put myself into jail, like you know what I mean. Before fights, two, three months before fights, no drinking, no bad food, no late nights, nothing like that. None of that normal shit that you do in your early twenties. None, none of that. And I lived that regimented lifestyle. All the way up and I, and I and I got a shot at fighting for an Irish title and I fought this chap and he won't mind me mentioning his name because uh, we're great friends now and I've actually only reconnected with him recently and, and uh, gotten to know him again, uh, Paddy Douglas. And I remember getting the fight with Paddy and going, okay, well look, I'm fighting the best guy in the country, so if I win this fight, I'm not only the Irish champ. I'm the best in the country because it's undisputed then because if I'm fighting the best guy in the country or as what everybody perceived to be the best guy in the country for this Irish title fight no one can say ah look if he fought this guy he wouldn't have won so I was delighted to get the opportunity to fight Paddy for the title and I remember getting to fight night and I had all the nerves and the jitters and I had I had struggled really badly um, to make the weight Uh, I was fighting at 72.5 kilos and to think I actually made 69.5 kilos after this fight is unimaginable. But anyway, I struggled a lot to make the weight, made the weight, got to the fight night, felt really weak on the night, but Jesus, I gave everything, everything I had in that fight. And anybody who watches that fight back, Paddy started to take over really in the middle of the third round. Um, I was starting to fade and um, he took over and what happened in the last minute of the last round was something that would just devastate me I, I was knocked unconscious paddy caught me with a perfect shot and put me down and i was knocked unconscious with uh, a, I think uh, a right hand and that avas- absolutely devastated me devastated me i was that close to even just finishing the fight getting to the end seeing whose hand was going to be raised and knocked unconscious. And I remember, I remember actually <laughs> being told um, I I got my eyes split open in the fight. And I remember that I was in the back, and the doctor was stitching my eye, oh, uh, my eye closed. And I was saying to her, I said, "Oh, um, is everyone having a good time? Is everyone having a good time here?" And um, she kind of looked around at at everyone that was around, and kind of said, "Um, yeah, yeah, they are." I thought I was at my twenty-first birthday party. That's that's how fucking badly I was knocked unconscious and how dehydrated my brain was. <laughs> I thought that I was at my fucking twenty-first and like I was twenty-two at the time. So like it was a bit away, like, you know what I mean? It would, it was a it was a good while ago, like. And so I finished up that night and I came home and I remember. I was concussed anyway, first of all, and I was in really, really bad shape, but I remember seeing my mum and that's all it took. I just saw my mum and uh I just broke down broke down into tears broke down into tears and just bawled crying into her arms and I was just absolutely devastated I was devastated because this was not just like a fight that I lost this was the last you know 3 4 years of my life that had kind of basically fallen off the track and I and that's why I don't like life as a track or a path anymore now because I really felt like I had fallen off track to where I was going, um, and it was tough, and it it was tough to talk about and even think about, um, for many years after that. That was twenty thirteen, and really, I had fought, I fought on a couple of times after that, but really, my love, my my grow, my desire for Thai boxing just died that night in the ring. I had given so much to this sport, and you know so so much more than i even needed to i could have had my good times my drinks my 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 relaxation times but i don't think my mind actually was was able to let go and and give me that time you know so i fought on a couple of times after that um but it was really starting to dwindle so i remember fighting on again and getting stopped again a year later about two or three fights down the line and I realized, yeah, no, this is this is just this is just heartbreak. It's fucking agonizing, and I I just couldn't I couldn't put myself through it anymore. And I had been living this regimented monk style lifestyle for so long with Thai boxing this discipline, like I had to be in training for this time and do this and get up early in the morning and run and lose weight and keep myself fit. And then all of that was washed away and gone. And what was left? This twenty three year old chap that was like okay what the fuck do we do here I had no idea how to live as like a, a normal 20 odd year old man because after that Irish title fight my my relationship broke down my relationship broke down my my girlfriend um cheated on me and the the relationship broke down and I was absolutely fucking devastated to tell you the truth I was devastated because I had lost Thai boxing I'd lost his girlfriend and then college finished up so I had, all of this, I had all of this structure and routine in my life and it was just all gone. So I I suppose I reverted to default and I said, all right, you know what we'll do? We, we're going to catch up. We're going to make up for last time. All the shit that my friends and my girlfriend and my family had told me that I should have been doing all my, and my brother told me that I should have been doing the drinking, you know, the gallivanting, the going out and all this kind of stuff, that's what I'm going to do. But I had no idea. It was a wilderness to me. It was a wilderness to me A lot of aspects of it were The drinking was a wilderness to me Women were an absolute wilderness to me I had my first girlfriend out of school All the way up for five years And when I was, when I was let loose Onto the scene where I was looking to date girls again Or see girls again I had no fucking idea what to do Or how they would, how they would um, you know view me So I had no idea and I was thrust into this life, and my addictive side of my personality kicked in. And um, what actually happened was I got a positive feedback loop from going out, right? And primarily, it was surrounded by 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 being a womanizer. Really, you know, like you could say, "Oh, Connor, Connor was a ladies' man." I I I, I turned into like exactly what I never should have been, and and some something that I'm not. I found that girls actually liked me, and they liked talking to me, and I was like, flipping heck, this is great, F- flip sakes, you know, this is the job, and then I just, that that replaced Thai boxing, so right, what, what 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 I mean by a positive feedback loop is, a positive feedback loop is, is is, is basically the structure behind any reward system, so there's an action, and then there's a reward, or some sort of a good feeling, and then that spurs on that action again, and I had that with Thai boxing for years. I had the action, which was like training and fighting, for in Thai boxing. And then the reward for that was like adulation, pats on the back, you know, and and like being viewed well at, by my peers. You know, that was the that was the reward, the validation I was always seeking. And then that would lead me on to training and fighting again. So I'd have to keep feeding that loop, and. That loop from tie boxing was just replaced by this loop of going out, chatting up women, pulling women, drinking. And I, and I even started smoking, I, like just so that I could talk to girls in, in smoking rooms. When I was langers drunk, took a cigarette off of somebody and then just started smoking from there. And I ended up as well getting a job out of college selling cars, right? That quickly developed into a job that I was making an awful lot of money from and it all just just made a big melting pot of this comfortable life that I had of going to work six days a week, drinking maybe three or four days a week and earning lots of money, spending lots of money in the bar and on clothes and all this shit that I thought was really important back then and I fell into that loop and that was times when I really felt at my very, very lowest. Throughout my times Thai boxing I had some of the biggest emotional roller coasters of my life. I I was up. I was down. I could never know what Connor I was going to wake up to at that time. I had had suicidal I, suicide ideation. I had thought about taking my own life, even during Thai boxing years, and that was amplified. In this what what I would call the wilderness years, the last years, these years of my life where I actually really was so lost. I had no idea who I was. I had no idea where my life was going, and. That positive feedback loop that I had from Thai boxing was replaced by this positive feedback loop of going out, getting drunk, chatting up girls, and and you know I was never you know disrespectful you know to 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 girls or whatever the case would be. I was not raised like that, but I definitely I definitely um, used that as a as a validation for myself because I had such low self esteem, my inner script for myself that I had written my inner script that I was reading was you're not good enough you have to be double you have to work double hard in college if you're going to be half as good as everyone else you're going to have to work doubly hard in tie boxing if you want to be half as good as everyone else that was the script I was feeding myself that's why I was in the library all the time that's why I was training all the time that's why I never drank that's why I never let myself let go because I always felt like I was an imposter I wasn't a good student and I wasn't a good tie boxer in my head I was very lucky and I trained and I was a grafter. And because I would train so hard and looked after myself so hard and, and I studied so hard, that's why I was getting good results and why I was winning fights. When all reality, I was actually good. I was a good student. I was diligent. I was actually a fantastic speaker um, in, in, my, in my law degree. I was a very, very good Thai boxer. I wasn't a great Thai boxer and I'll, I'll even look back at that now. I was quite a good Thai boxer. You know, I would say six point five seven out of ten. <laughs> um but I, I had such an awful script of myself all the way out through my life that I was reading this script all the time of this of this man who just who had to work harder than everyone else to be half as good as them. And by winning fights and by chatting up girls, that gave me that validation that I was good. That I was that I was that I was good looking because I was have to get in my heart smashed to bits. I was have to get in my heart broken up big style, and so like I had to get some sort of validation. I was like Connor, you're like, what is the story? Like, are you just not, you know, somebody that somebody would find attractive, or what's the fucking story? Because like that, and that's the that's the dialogue that I was just so the script that I was so, um, used to 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 saying to myself in my head was I wasn't good enough for this that and the other. And that followed me through in relationships as well, I never felt like I was good enough for the person that I was with, I never felt like I was good enough for jobs, like even though I was really, really good at my job selling cars, I would dip out of being good because I'd almost be afraid that I, you know, that I would, that I would actually do good, you know, and it's so weird, I just, I could never, I could never get the inside chat about myself to be positive. And throughout all that time, um like I I, I actually even ended up leaving Ireland and going to Canada as this kind of last ditch effort to try and solve my problems and and I was running away. I was running away from my life in Ireland and I moved over to Canada and what did happened? I lived the same life that I was living in Ireland in Canada. And I was in Canada and I got a big payout from the Rev, from the revenue by they gave me little big stacks of cash. And I go, it's John I gonna do. Canada didn't work it didn't solve my problems it didn't you know get me to like think about my life in any different way I'm gonna go back to Thai boxing so I'm gonna go back to Thai boxing so I, f- I ended up fucking moving over to fucking Thailand from Canada like what like thinking back on it like I, I'm like Jesus you know this is, this is the, the way that I was thinking and showing compassion to myself now I can see why I was thinking like that I was lost I was lost. I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea what I was doing. Who I was. Where my life was going. I felt really, really trapped and lost. And 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 you see, the thing is, if I had just accepted that sometimes you're not going to know where your life is going to go, back then I'd have been able to have been better, a bit, bit, bit easier on myself. But I wasn't. I had such a bad script written for myself that uh, that I just couldn't. I couldn't see the positive sides. I couldn't see the compassionate sides of life. I moved over to Thailand, right? But what people don't know is, when I moved over to to Thailand, I had been told that I had a benign cyst in my brain. It's completely harmless, like completely harmless. But it basically, I was basically advised that, look, you should probably shouldn't fight again. Like you know, you can fight again if you want to, but you shouldn't really because it could, you know, could cause you something you never know, and. I was never, you know, I don't have a brain injury or anything like that. But that played on my mind big time when I went over there. And I remember in my second fight, I was just like, no, this is not for me. This is not for me. And um, I left Thailand and went back to Canada. And I was still as lost as I ever was before. I was really, really feeling down, drinking a lot, smoking a lot of weed as well. When I was in Canada, smoking a lot of weed every day, drinking a lot. Using these things as crutches to kind of navigate through my head, and I remember getting a um, a phone call from my father saying that my godfather, my uncle, um, who I was very, very close with, and who he was very close with me, had uh, had suddenly passed away, had 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 a heart attack, and had 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 died, and um, I got the I got a flight out um, the next day from Vancouver to Cork. And I came back home and I really wasn't, I wasn't really ready. I wasn't ready to be coming back to that scene of, of all my family being heartbroken. And I wasn't ready to, I wasn't ready to come back into normal life. And do you know what I ended up doing? I ended up getting a job in the same place that I worked in before. I was selling cars. And I remember getting my job back selling cars again. And I was like, Jesus Christ. You know, I had said a billion times, I'm not going to go back selling cars. And there I was. Back into this comfortable life that I knew. That was not uncertain. That was, you know, I knew what I was going to get every day. I walked through the door, I knew exactly what way it was going to be. And I resumed my life of just drinking, smoking, gallivanting, and and not having any purpose or meaning in my life. And I'm forty-seven minutes in here now, and I really wanted it to be forty-five minutes long, um, and I'm and I I'm I'm very very conscious of that. So I'm going to leave the story here and when I when I come back for part two, I'm going to basically talk about um finding ultramarathon in my darkest moments of my life. And 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 not so much finding ultramarathon, but finding me, finding who I actually am. And and realizing that ultramarathon is just something I do. It's not who I am and not my identity. But um yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna do a part two of this. Um and I'm going to discuss basically how I how I came about to finding Ultra and finding myself. But you heard me talk about scripts. I had written scripts for myself from a young age. From a very, very young age, I had written this script for myself, right? And that's why I'm calling this podcast the Flip the Script podcast. Because part two of this is where I flip the fucking script. I flip the script. And I flip the script around... To being my own best friend. And, to, and, and I flipped the script around to seeing negative things as positive things. Seeing opportunity in setbacks. And and that flip the script mindset is what, I, what really has brought me to where I am today. And, and feeling comfortable in my own skin. So that's why it's called Flip the Script Podcast. Because I want you guys who are listening to this. To, to listen to it. To enjoy it. And, and to think about maybe scripts that you've written for yourselves that aren't positive that aren't good for you and I want you to start flipping them and, and this is the thing I don't I'm never going to like you know generally like tell you this is what you should do but if you can apply this to your own lives and can say Jesus you know what actually I, al- I always thought this about myself and you can flip it around into a positive way and and have, have a positive outcome in your life. That's that's the goal. That's that's the goal of this podcast, I suppose. You know, and and to talk about things that interest me, and things about thought patterns, and about the way we think about ourselves, and and all of those different things. So that's why it's called Flip the Script Podcast, and that's the first podcast. It's gonna it's the background to who I am, and I'm gonna take it up from there, from when I got back to Ireland, and how I discovered. Firstly, ultra ultra endurance and secondly discovered who I am and and how I'm still discovering who I am and how I'm still surprising myself every day with who I am and and what I'm about so thank you so much for listening to episode one and I hope that you you look forward to listening to episode two peace and love con